I, I got here early this morning and walked around each room by myself. There was no one here. And um, I just took a, a couple of minutes in every room in this building. There's a lot. And I, I just took sort of a spiritual, mental inventory of God's work. And so I'm feeling thankful for you, for him. And this morning we're going to we're going to look at the text which I was already assigned and maybe it will turn out to be meaningful that this is the text for today. But um, I'm aware, I hope you're aware too, that this is a, it's a moment. It's a, it's a piece of history in the history of our, the life of our organization. This moment is an important moment. And so I think we should mark it somehow. Mark it in our hearts. And so, Lord Jesus, I come to you this morning as I have so many times from this place. And I ask the thing we only ever want, which is for an encounter with you. I'm asking this morning, Lord, that this would be a memorial in our hearts. And that you would, as we always hope, change us somehow in the hearing of your word in the life you've called us to lead give us just a little more courage and just a little more fascination and just a little more commitment in Jesus name amen I think you know this text, so rather than having time in groups, and because Shandra really wants me to not be long today, how about you just listen? One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. So place is important, but where isn't? And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And so he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine is on a journey, has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give the bread because of friendship, 
Yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Now, obviously, this is a, a text about prayer. It's uh, even the two uh, stories, or the one story, the two analogies that are given to us here by Jesus are really an attempt to sort of illuminate his teaching on prayer, which is actually quite short. But what I'm curious about when I read this, at least this time, is why... Do they ask him this now? Why are they only now asking him how to pray? What have they seen? Something is catalyzing, precipitating this curiosity at this moment. And by the way, the connection here is between Jesus, who is Lord. He's already, we've already seen him in Luke as Lord. So he's the person they should be learning from. He is their master. He is their teacher. And so there is a connection being made between his practice of daily prayer and their lives. It's as strong of a discipleship thread as exists in all the New Testament. This idea that Jesus does this and his disciples should do the same. And we've already seen that, that daily prayer, morning prayer, is a part of Jesus' life. Jesus prayed every day. He made time for it. More than that, it was part of how he lived in the world, part of how he engaged the world from the place of prayer. It's part of who he was. And, and actually, therefore, it is an expression of his lordship. His submission to the Father is an expression of his lordship over us. And so it stands to reason, and I don't want to brush over this idea that it is a part of what it means to faithfully follow him. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, if you think of yourself as a disciple of Jesus, well, you, you should pray too. We pray too. Every day. Every day. If we are his disciples. We define the way we live in the world through sitting at the feet of Jesus in prayer, submitting, listening, pursuing intimacy. It is a part of faithful following. But how we pray is what is at stake here. And it makes all the difference in the world. A lot of people pray. People pray who don't even believe in God. They pray because why not? They pray because give it a shot. People pray who have every sort of religious persuasion. People pray. 
So how you pray and to whom you pray and what happens in the place of prayer is essential. And finally, his disciples have come around to ask him this question. He's not the one who brings it up. This is important. Super important. You get the sense that he would have kept all this to himself forever if they had not asked. And I find that strange. And yet, I sort of understand it because I think the deepest place of prayer is like that. It's, it's a secret that people hold. The people who pray the most. Some of us are like that. I, I, have, I wouldn't consider myself one of these people, but there are people that just, they, they, they go, they plumb the depths of prayer. And they're not eager to share with you how to do it. You have to ask. People who give themselves to prayer, they're, they're sort of like this. They, maybe because they know intrinsically that this thing which they find in the place of prayer can only be found through true desire. It's not a mechanism. There is no four steps to this sort of uh, uh, mysterious prayer or, or, or deep prayer life. It's something that has to come from you. It has to be dredged up from your own guts. And if they don't ask the question, he can't actually answer it for them. And so finally they do. But why now? Why now? What have they seen in him? As he comes down from the place of prayer this morning, what have they seen? Maybe, this is my theory, maybe that they're seeing a contrast, some sort of juxtaposition to the way they think about the life of prayer and what they see in the face of Jesus. And they're puzzled. He, whatever he's doing over there when he goes to pray, it isn't what, what we experience when we go to pray. He is somehow affected differently than we are. I mean, let me ask you this question. Is prayer, essentially, in your mind, for you, as, as it, this question would have, been, would, have, would have hung in the air over the disciples, is prayer, essentially, in your mind, a duty? Or is it a joy? Is, don't answer too quickly. Is it a duty or is it a joy? Is prayer something that all Christians should do and therefore you should get up and say your prayers just like eat your Wheaties or, 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 or do your exercise or something like that? Is it, is it essentially, I mean at its core, existentially, is it, is, it, is it a duty or is it a pleasure? And of course, we think of those two things utterly differently. A duty is something that we feel we must do, and if we don't do it, we feel some level of guilt. A pleasure is something other than that. It is this thing which we pursue because we have a deep desire to do it, because to miss it makes us sad, you see. Is it essentially, as we've, been, as we've been offered, mostly as Protestants, is prayer essentially a discipline, something that you, you, you don't, listen, follow me for a second, a discipline, something that you don't really want to do, uh, you don't really like to do necessarily, but once you have done it, you feel good. Like exercise. No, nobody, some of you I know are exercise weirdos. But if you're honest, you don't really like it. You don't want to do it before. You don't love it when you're doing it. But when it's over, you feel good having done it. Does anyone understand what I'm saying? Yes. 
so look, if Jeremy agrees with me on that, that's just, that's just the way it is. That's how it is. <laughs> Exercise is one of those things which is a discipline. It is good for you. You know it's good for you, but you don't necessarily have this deep desire to go do it right in the moment, but you always feel good afterwards. Is prayer like that? I think this is how we've mostly talked and thought about prayer. And in a sense, it's true. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not negating that. But it's just not how or why Jesus prayed. And it's not what he's offering them. It's not what he's offering us this morning. What does this little teaching reveal? Let's work backwards for a second. So let's work, let's work from the, the end of what he says back to the beginning. Jesus is saying first that it's God, that, that, that it is an interaction with a generous God who is eager to give us good things. And of all the good things in the world, the best of all is his spirit, his presence. This is the God we come to in prayer. This is, this is, this is, this is the meaning of the, the persistent uh, uh, request, the knocking on the door of the friend. Even an evil person, if asked for something good, will consistently answer yes. That is a static reality Jesus is pointing to. Even an evil person, if asked for something good and you persist, they will answer you yes. But God, our Father, the Father that is revealed for the first time, really, to the human race in, in the face of Christ Jesus, reveals, he reveals a God that is not like that, but he actually wants to give us good things. And when we ask, listen very carefully, we, when you ask God for something, you are asking someone who has a disposition towards yes to you. He is starting from a position of wanting to say yes to you. This would have been mind-boggling for a first century audience. And I think of, I can't help but think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, but surely God is faithful. Our message to you was not yes and no. It was always yes. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who, preached, who was preached among you by us, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ so that through him the amen is spoken to us by the glory of God. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. That's Paul trying to understand this relationship with a God who has a disposition of yes towards you. Now, a lot of you have grown up with parents that had a disposition of no towards you. Some of you have bosses with a disposition of no towards you. Some of you have spouses with a disposition of no towards you. Do you know what I'm saying? Does anyone have an experience of, of being in a relationship with a person that has a disposition of no towards you? Anyone? Anybody want to admit as a parent, you have a disposition of no towards your children. They, they come to you and you start off with, I don't, really don't know what it is, but I no. The answer is already no. For you, it's no.
And if that is true about God, if that's what part of what Jesus, that's, that's who Jesus goes and experiences when he goes off to pray. He experiences this gracious Father, then it only remains for us to ask. By the way, part of what he does in that little story of the persistent friend is he gives them, and this is important, he gives the request that's being made in the story is a moral good, is a cross-cultural moral good to actually provide food for a traveler would have been across all cultures in the first century world the highest possible moral good. And so part of what Jesus is doing there is he's not just saying if you ask for a new bicycle or you ask for a new job or you ask for that spouse or prosperity or whatever it is that you think you want. That's not what he's saying. He's saying choose something that we know, we all know is morally good. And if you were to ask your Father in heaven for that thing, of course the answer would be yes. The key is to ask for the request to be good and then to ask. And so when we do, when we ask for healing or insight or for love, for love. It's actually shocking to me how, how rarely I, I hear people pray to God for love. When actually, if, if I could sort of wave my magic wand and just give the human beings I know something more of what they currently have a deficit in, it would be that. And yet we don't often pray for that. We pray for other things which we think will bring us what only the depths of love could bring us, and yet, do we even ask for his will, for something eternally good like that? The answer from the Father who loves us will always be yes, and to hear that yes. To pray something and to hear God say yes to you is to experience unity with God, which is, in the end, I think, the highest, greatest experience that we can have as human beings, unity, oneness with God. This is what Jesus walked in. It's why when he came from the place of prayer, he had agreement. Even when he wasn't sure, even in a place like Gethsemane where we see the vulnerability of Jesus exposed and he's, he's saying, can we not do it this way? Can it be another way? He still leaves the garden in agreement with the Father. And that unity, that, that unity of love, what, 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 what the theologian Paul Tillich calls love, love is unity. They are the same thing. And, and that unity of love that he experiences in the place of prayer is enough strength to face a Roman cross. The Holy Spirit then is the ultimate gift of prayer because unity, agreement, and submission are the real work of prayer. Come into submission. It is to talk to God and to know that you are in the same space as God. To know that he knows you, sees you, acknowledges you, and his countenance toward you is gracious, favorable. To 
feel and know and be fascinated by God. To touch Him and to be somehow touched by Him. There are no words to describe it. There are no normal words. There are no analogies. There's, the, there's only shadows and shortfalls, only, only mirrors and imitations. But, 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 but I'll talk more about that in a minute, uh, uh, how prayer is, a, is, a, is an imitation of something. But this one we come to know in prayer, in the place of prayer, is everything. It is to drink from the fountain of youth, taste the sweetest food, know the greatest high, all wrapped up in one. And yet we pray so infrequently. And so when you go off, what do you do? How do you pray? This is their question for him, because I don't think it's like the way we pray. So they ask him, and this is, this is what I see. I, I mean, we should probably spend l longer on this, understanding this text, but let me, let me just, let me brush across it and see if we can't touch something extraordinary. I think he's saying, when you pray, pray like you're coming home. I think he's saying when you pray, pray with a fire of hope burning in your heart. Hope for something that you see in your mind's eye, but not in the world. And I think he's saying when you pray, pray like a son or a daughter. Pray like an heir, because you are. So let me just unpack those things. First, pray like you're coming home. Obviously, Jesus is just, just returning from the place of prayer when they ask him this question, so there is a transition here, and Jesus is giving a template, presumably what he just prayed. So they're asking him, Lord, how should we pray? And he's saying, well, here's what I pray, here's what I just prayed, and there's something very beautiful about that, something very intimate about that. I mean, if, if I don't know, if you have a lot of respect for Mother Teresa and you find out she prayed the same prayer every day, you'd want to know that prayer. You can, there's a connection when we say, say the same prayer as someone else. And Jesus is saying, well, this is what I pray. Feel closer to Jesus when we pray this way. But it's, 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 it's more than just a, 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 a template or an approach or a paradigm for prayer. It's, it's something more than that. I think for Jesus, prayer was a returning home to his father. He starts his prayer with a greeting. Listen, I know you've heard a million prayers in your life, and you don't, what you don't realize is that those million prayers that you've heard have been influenced by this. But it's extraordinary, at least at this point, for them to hear that you begin your prayer with a greeting. It's as if he's coming home. I think that the place of prayer for Jesus was an enduring home for him. Now, I've never been to, to Israel. I've never been to the Holy Land. I don't know if you have. I, I have a lot of friends that have gone there, and, and they, they rave. They, they tell me how extraordinary it is to walk those roads and see those things. I, I, I can understand the allure of it. I've just never really felt the urge to do it. But people do it and they love it, and presumably they love it because they feel closer to Jesus to walk where he walked or see the skyline he would have seen, those mountain ranges or whatever. 
to remember the events of those places, they still exist, to actually be in the place where the event happened, to go where he was, to stand where he stood, imagining him there. Those places then become holy. In fact, we, we, we've come Christians, uh, Jews and Muslims, all call that sort of part of the world the holy land. It's interesting connection between that land, those places, and holiness. They become holy to us. Yet, I find this ironic, at least for us as Christians. Here's why. Because Jesus did not feel that kind of affinity with place. Not the way we do. Actually, Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No place. No place to stay. No, no earthly home. He didn't actually revere the temple very much. Jesus was not big on the temple. In fact, the stuff he had to say about the temple was kind of rough. He, he thought the temple was a distraction from God, actually, and he said he would actually destroy the temple. He was not impressed by holy sites. Even the town of his own birth was of no interest to him. Jerusalem itself is a city not particularly impressed with. He only actually had pity for it. He never seemed to favor one place over another place, instead spending most of his ministry moving around so that there didn't seem to be excessive favor shown to one place or another. It's actually quite remarkable, his, his uh, detachment from place. Yet for a man, listen, for a man without a home, he was so grounded the things which we know a home give us, he seemed to have in abundance. It, it, in fact, he, he, he felt he seemed so at home in the world that we can barely comprehend how. Because he seemed at home wherever he was. He seemed to have all the benefits of home. Stay with me. That place where we go when things are hard, when life is storming, a shelter, a place of retreat, that's what home is. Where we feel, when we feel our enemies closing in, that castle, that, that refuge, that place to be rested and restored, a place where everything is as it should be, everything is in its proper place, a place where you can be yourself, walk around in your underwear, a, a place where you can let your guard down. Yeah, with, with your dumb jokes that you wouldn't say in public, but you could say there. A place where you're known and you, you loved for who you are. A place where you can be both silly and serious. A place uh, 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 where you're free to be yourself. This, this is, Jesus seemed to have this, guys. A place where he, he had a place where he was free to be himself. And equally a place where he could be unsure he had a place where he could retreat when he felt his enemies closing in. He had a place for questions and a place for answers. This is home, and he had one of these. It was a place from which he could go back into the world, strong again, rested, clear, temperate. It was a place where his best friend lived, a place where his family lived. And I think that place for Jesus was prayer. I, I think I told you this story before. When, we, when Mike Patz and I were writing the book different, we went and took a retreat. 
and we were at this little lake house, and, and I, I've, I've not known someone in my life in ministry who prays as much and as consistently as Mike Patz. And he seems, uh, you know, fascinated with God in prayer. And so he was committed, I don't know why, he doesn't always pray this much, but that summer, when we were working on that book together, that summer he was committed to spending th the first three hours of every morning in prayer. And so I would, you know, we've competed our whole lives. So I was like, well, three and a half hours then is what I'm going to do, you know. But I couldn't do it. You know, every morning I was like, he was already up. And I'm like, forget it. I'll pray for 30 minutes. You know, that's, you, you, I already lost, you know. So, um, but, but every morning I would see him out there. And what, what's, what's fascinating to me about Mike and, and actually what caught me this, this time when we were together is just I, I, I was sort of pondering his personality and thinking, man, this is like the most extroverted person I know. He's, he's just incredibly energized by being around people, and yet he can spend such long periods of time in prayer, and it really kind of vexed me. Um, he, this, is, this is Mike. He'll preach, um, he'll preach a, like a 9 o'clock service, then he'll drive across town and do like 11 o'clock service, and then he has to preach again, and eat like another service, and then an evening service. He'll do four or five services a day, and in between those, in that sort of dead zone between like two and five, he goes and plays volleyball with non-Christians. That's what he wants to go do. Nobody else is impressed by that? I think that's crazy. So I preach one sermon, and I want to go into a coffin, have it sealed, and leave me alone for about a day. That's what I want. He just, he just needs more people. That wasn't enough people, you know what I mean? So he just wants to go be with more people. So I don't understand how it is possible that such an extrovert can have such an extraordinary prayer life. And so I asked him the question while we were there. I just said, Mike, how is it that you as such an extrovert can, I, I, I just don't get it, how you can spend so much time alone in prayer. And you know what he said to me? This is what he said, which I've told you before. He said, Brian, because I'm not alone. Only, only, only an introvert would think of prayer as being alone. He didn't. He's like, Brian, are you kidding? I hate being alone. Prayer is not like that. It's a it was a chance for him to be with the person he most wanted to be with in the world. I think this was the same with Jesus. I think he had built a home for himself in prayer. Like the psalmist said, you, God, are my hiding place. You, this relationship that we have, that's my home. A place that is untethered to any other place. And it could go with him wherever he went. Wherever he was, he was never more than one step from the threshold of his home. Never. It cost him no money, it required no energy. To travel to guys you can have a home like that too you do you actually do already yours might be small like your home of prayer might be a tiny house like a tiny home of prayer it might be neglected but if you ever pray ever. You have one that you are building. And it's actually the only home that we have that continues with us into eternity. Everything else we do now 
for our earthly home, and I have an old house, so I do a lot of my house. I always have to sort of fight with it to exist. It doesn't want to exist. It wants to fall down and stop, everything stop working, so I have to fight with it. In my experience, maybe because we take crappy buildings, but in my experience, buildings don't want to live. They want to die. They, want to, they, want to, they don't want to be what you need them to be. They want to be something else. They want to be rubble is what they want. They want to leak. They want to not work. They want to have vermin in them. They, 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 they don't want to be what they're supposed to be in the world. You have to fight with them. And all this work I do on that building, my house, this, this building, all the buildings we're in, all that work will perish. And in not that long of a time, by the way. I mean, it might be hard to hear, especially for those that's worked really hard, like George or Mike or whoever else might be here, that, we, that our work lasted four years in this building. And now to us it perishes. This is a happy, happy message. <laughs> but the house you build in prayer, the home you build in prayer, will go with you into your eternal destiny. Every gain you make, every step, every block you build upon another in this home of prayer is a gain that you keep with you forever. In this house you build in prayer, that place you can go even now, can go with you beyond this world. Now, I'm spending a lot of time, obviously the last few weeks, a lot of time, you know, working on this new place, this new space that we've gotten. And I'm spending a lot of time and, qu and quite a bit of money to make a place for us, a place for you, for me, for our teams, for our microchurches. And I love, I love doing it. I, I, I am driven. I mean, you, some, some people might criticize me or think I'm overdoing it or something like that. But first of all, I just want to remind you that each servant must stand before his own master, of which you are not my master. So don't judge me. That's number one. Number two, um, don't judge, so don't judge another man's servant. That's number one. Number two, uh, if you could see my heart, if I could peel back my heart, you would see that what drives me, not always, but what drives me mostly, what drives me is a love for you. The hours that I work, the extra hours that I work to, to, to prepare this place is really, it, there, there is like a fire that burns in me to serve you as you serve the world. I mean, I have so much respect for you. I am so moved by your sacrifice in mission, your sacrifice for those that have not heard the name of Jesus or those that are far from him or those who are hungry or those who are broken or those who are abused or those who are poor, that so moves me that I will lay down my life for you. It's easy. It's easy for me to do that. And it's good. It's very good. This, the place we're building, I think you're going to like it. It's weird. You know, it's in a mall. I understand that. We're making do like we always. We take something that doesn't quite work and we make it into something that might just maybe work for us. 
It's good. It's good to set a table. It's good to eat together. It's good to ask for extra bread and practice hospitality, which is what we're doing by combining our resources. It's part of what makes life holy and beautiful. It's part of what makes the kingdom come. This work that we're doing over there is important. It's important. But, but, please understand, the value of that place, just like the value of this place once was, the value of that place, this labor that we put into it is only meaningful it's, it's only powerful because it reminds us of what we discover in the place of prayer. The building itself is meaningless. The things themselves are meaningless. It's all meant to bear witness to something better, something more extraordinary. Please understand the real value of that place is that it creates a, a longing for something more. These places, uh, they, they, they simulate fellowship, the sharing of life and mission and the love of God. They're meaningless as something temporary because they, if they're only something temporary, but they become meaningful because they represent something which is eternal. They, 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 they offer us the possibility of something more. Now, four years ago, four years ago, I asked you to imagine this space. We walked into that room, a bunch of us, and it was just a shell, and I asked you to imagine this space as ours. As we walked around this empty building, we envisioned it. And I'll ask for that again in the next space. And someone asked me recently if I was sad, and if I was sad to leave this building. And the truth is, there is li literally, mine and many of our blood in this building, sweat, and tears. I mean, my tears have stained this floor. Yours have too. My blood is in these walls. Not a lot of it, <laughs> thankfully, but here and there. And of course, our sweat covered these floors. It is... It was a labor of love, so am I sad to leave? And look, my answer, my very honest, straightforward answer is no. And here's why. It's what I told you four years ago. Exactly four years ago, I said this. I, was, I, I brought up this, this obscure passage in Joshua 22, where you have these tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh. And when the, when, the, when the promised land got distributed, so everybody got their place in the tribes of Israel, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh didn't get any space in the promised land. They had to get, their, their land allotments were outside the promised land. How does that suck? <laughs> promised land, we entered into it. Not you guys, though, seriously. But you can have a spot over here outside the promised land. That's what they got. They got the seconds, the promised land seconds. And so these guys, uh, in, in a desire to be close, they, they, they built a replica of the altar, which is in the temple. They built a replica of the altar. And the rest of the tribes of Israel freaked out. They're like, you guys are idolaters, and we're going to go to war with you. We're going we're to wipe you out for making a replica altar. 
Do you remember this? And then, so then they, the, those guys say, no, 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 no. You've totally misunderstood us. Totally misunderstood. We're not going to do burnt offerings on this altar. Nothing. It is, and they said, it is a replica called witness. This is what they said. Listen. This is why we said, let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord in his sanctuary with our burnt offerings. So don't worry, we'll go to the temple, do our burnt offerings there. But then in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. And we, and we said, if they ever say this to us and to our descendants, we will answer, look at the replica of the Lord's altar, which our ancestors built, not for burnt offerings and sacrifices, but as a witness between you and me. Then I, I found that to be relevant, beautiful, and powerful. This idea of building just, just outside the promised land. Worried, fearful that we wouldn't enter into it. That we might forget. That the next generation might forget. Our commitments to the one true God, and, and, and instead to say we want to build something that isn't the real thing, but it's something that reminds us of the real thing. It's something that looks exactly like the real thing. It's something that has the same dimensions as the real thing, but we know it isn't the real thing and still has value. And the value that it has is that it bears witness to the real thing, the replica that bears witness to the real thing. Can't you see? That's what these things are. They're meaningless. You can't, you, can't, you can't make sacrifices here. This is not a holy place. You are God's holy place. And you go with us wherever we go. But this place is a replica. It's a place that reminds us that, that there is such a place as heaven. And that's the best you can do in building something. To build a replica which bears witness. And we build things. We build homes and offices and ministries and ministry spaces and relationships and marriages and friendships and families. We build replicas called witness. We better. A witness between us and God that we are his people. A witness to the world that we are his people. But we remember, every time we build something, we remember that we're waiting for something better, something else. It isn't the thing itself. It isn't the real altar, you see. The spaces we build and the spaces we inhabit are holy when they are a replica of heaven. When they do what spaces are supposed to do, what relationships are supposed to do, which is bear witness to the eternal. Listen, some of you have homes that you have built, humble, modest homes that you have built, which bear witness to the eternal. If somebody knocks on your door, at 6 o'clock, you invite them in for dinner. If someone is in need on your block, you come out and you bring them in. You have taken in adopted children, foster children. You've taken in friends, travelers. 
You've welcomed people. For as long as you've had that house, you have welcomed people in that house. And I want you to understand that that house is not just a house. It's not something that exists in the American dream or the American psyche. It's something that exists in the mind and heart of God because it represents the kingdom itself. That place is holy because of what it bears witness to, the possibility that it bears witness to. This building is holy, is holy. Bless you, Mark. This building is holy because of what it bears witness to. When I walked in every single room, I thought about what God had done in every single room. I thought about the Jesus encounters that took place in that banquet room. The people who made life-changing decisions that took place in that, that ratty room, which the lights never were bright enough. And you couldn't do anything to make it look good, really? The weddings that took place, the commitments. I walked through the clinic and even that sort of like forsaken space that was just all toilet fumes for a couple years and we turned that into a place where people get better who are sick and cared for. All our kids that were taught in those two little tiny weird rooms back there with like a washer dryer is in there. I don't know why we have a washer dryer in the kids space. <laughs> All the dreams and schemes that we've done behind this wall, ministries that were started, pivots, scales. And all of those things, all of those things that make this place good were because of the presence of God. And that, he has promised, will go with us wherever we are. This building will just become a building. It will lose its most precious commodity when we leave. To pray is to aspire. To build something, to build a home in the middle of your life, to aspire is to reach, to desire. And to pray is to build in your life, with your life, a replica of that intimacy which God has offered us, that wedding that one day we will have with God. And we do have an enduring home that is represented, we hope, in these temporary things that we build. And I'm working hard, and we are working hard, to provide a place for us to work together, to sit at the same tables, to use the same printer, to eat at the, in the same break room, to share the same classrooms, to scheme and dream in the same conference rooms, so that we together remember heaven. And all of that is a longing. All of that is a kind of prayer for his name to be regarded as holy and for his kingdom to come into the world. We pray, we ought to pray as if we're building an eternal home. Second, I think when we pray, Jesus is saying we ought to pray with some sort of hope, some sort of 
burning hope for a world which is to come, to see it. I mean, see it. When you pray, you have to be seeing not just this little need right in front of your face, not just this little thing that you want God to do, but to actually see the blossoming of that need and every other need like it fulfilled in the world. It's not just that Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray, give me my daily bread. Forgive me for my sins. What is he saying? He's saying, look, just after the coming of the kingdom, which sets up the whole thing, oh, that your glory, that God's glory would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and that your kingdom would be reigning over all things, and then, and then, and then, what would happen? Well, then, then every single person would have bread every single day. And poverty itself would be extinguished. What's at the heart of this prayer? The heart of this prayer is the glory of God, the coming of his kingdom, the delivery of justice to the poor, and the proclamation of the gospel and the forgiveness of sins, the cross and the resurrection, this is what all of life and ministry is about. This prayer is not just a little template about how to pray when you're alone with God, just the two of you. This template is a template for all of creation. That God would be glorified, that his kingdom would come, that justice would be served, that the poor would be delivered, and that the, the, the proclamation of the gospel for the forgiveness of sins would be given to all people. That's what we ought to pray. And when you pray like that, your eyes better get big like saucers because you're, you're no longer just praying for that one small thing which is in front of you, that one small obstacle which stands in front of you. But what you're actually praying is, Lord, today when I'm hungry, today when I have this need, that what I'm really praying for is that all, that there would be a world where those things are no longer the needs of human beings, that these obstacles wouldn't exist for anyone, actually. And then there's a drive, you see, out of a prayer like that, which changes you. You pray a prayer like that. You agree with God on a prayer like that. You receive unity in love with the Holy Spirit on a prayer like that. And you begin to be different. You go out from that place of prayer as a missionary. You're changed because it opens up your eyes to a hope of a world which could be utterly different. This is why I love you. This is why I couldn't serve in a traditional church. They would kill me or I would kill them or fire me or something like that. I can only work with you and people like you because why? Because, because you see that, because you know, because each day you, you work in this small field to see this bigger thing come true. We have to pray like that but also live like that. The other day I was, well maybe it was, maybe it was a few weeks ago now, I was doing some work on this house we have in St. Petersburg, which we're trying to sell. So I was kind of renovating it. And um, I was over there. The front door had come in, had been delivered. So I take it over there. And it's, this house is on the south side of St. Pete. And so it's a pretty, pretty gnarly neighborhood. And a lot, lot of crazy stuff. I mean, I was there for maybe a month working on and off at night and stuff. So I got to see just how lively the neighborhood was. <clears throat> and, and so I, I'm outside, I'm sort of working on this door, trying to put it in. And I hear this, you know, dispute, this kind of domestic shouting match, which is like right across the street, maybe one house over. So it's just adjacent to where I'm standing. And I see this guy come out come kind of walk, run out of the front door of the stoop and he turns around and then this woman comes into the doorway, door frame, and they're just, they're just battling, they're shouting at each other. And he has in his hand this, this like small safe, like one of those little portable safes. 
and she's yelling at him and you're no good and whatever. And so he, he puts that down. He goes and he just punches her as hard as he can. And she flies through the doorway back into the house. So I was already starting to walk over there because I'm like, this is, this is crazy. Now, you got to be careful, though, in domestic disputes. You know, you don't, you don't just want to necessarily make it worse. So I, I'm not advocating anyone go and throw yourself into domestic violent situations. But as soon as he hits her, I'm just like, okay, that's that. That's enough. <clears throat> so I, I go over there and I, I try to intervene. I don't remember what I said exactly. Maybe it wasn't perfectly Christ-like, everything I said. Um, that isn't the point. I'm not trying to set myself up as the hero. I said something, something to the effect of, you know, I tried to use, you know, Irv taught me verbal judo. So I, you just try to, like, tell people what to do. So I was just like, get away. You know, I was like, stop. So he stops. It's cool if you try it. Just tell people strongly, and they do stuff sometimes. So I'm like, stop. So he stops. And then I'm like, something to the effect of, why don't you try that on me or something like that. <laughs> Someone that will hit you back, you know. Um, and so he's sort, of, he's sort of taken back. And initially, he's scared. This is all in the front yard now. She comes back out. She's still yelling. Um, and then he decides, wait, this is my house. I don't need to listen to you. So he kind of gets up in my face. And I'm like, I'm not going anywhere. And so I, I try to pull him away. She keeps yelling at him. And I'm like, you just need to leave. You need to go. Get out of here. Get gone. So he's like, fine. So he takes off down the street. And then I go over to her. She seems okay. No visible marks or anything. And I'm like, you need to call the police. I don't, look, I don't know you, but you need to call the police. That's, that's horrible. You have to do something. And she's like, you call the police. And I'm like, no, you call the police. <laughs> and I said something to the effect of, have some respect for yourself. You shouldn't be treated like that. You gotta do something about this. She's like, I will, I will. So she goes inside and then she doesn't call the police. What she does instead is get her keys, come out, jump in her van, and just rip out of there. I mean, like squealing tires after him with her car. I'm just like, okay, I don't, I don't know what's gonna happen here. So I go back to kind of fastening the door. Maybe five minutes later, I don't know, six, seven minutes later, and, and you need to know too, there's, there's like a 13-year-old boy who's also in the mix here. He's sort of in the background. I see him kind of looking around. That's what I'm guessing his age. And now I look over across the street and I see him standing on the front porch and he's looking down the street the opposite way that, that she took off and he's screaming at the top of his lungs, no, no, no. Mom, mom, mom. I mean, a blood-curdling scream. And, he's, and he's, he's breaking down physically. He's falling. There's no one there but him standing on this little, little, little front porch stoop and just looking down the street and just crying and screaming at the top of his lungs, no, mom, no. So I go over to him, and as I'm walking over to him, I see down the street what's happened. She has come around with this car, found him, and tried to run him over with the car. But, it, but missed, I guess. 
and hit a fire hydrant, totaled the car, and now there's like a, it's kind of funny, it's horrible, it's life, it's the world, it's planet Earth, and, and there's a broken sign, and the fire hydrant's broken, and the car's up like this, totaled, and she's out of the car, and they're walking back home, the two of them, yelling at each other across the street. So I go over to him real quick, and I'm like, I see her, she's okay, I see her, calm down, you're going to be okay, she's okay. I get his name. And I say, look, do you want to go down there with, you want to go down, let's go see her. You come with me, I'll, I'll take you down there. So I put my arm around him, I get his name, I, I tell him he's going to be okay, calm down, she looks fine, everything's going to be okay, walk him down there. She's, they're still going at it, the two of these guys, they're going at it. He's like, now he's scared because he's like, oh, they're going to, you know, the police are going to come, we don't need that. And all of a sudden, now there's like this, this confederacy between the two of them to somehow... I don't know, avoid police intervention. So they, they start to go back in the house, and I'm like, no, 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 do, do, no, do not go back in the house together. And I'm like, please think about this child. I'm like, get out of here. And, and I'm like, mom, please care for your son. What are you doing? She blames, it's him, he, whatever. I'm like, look, do the right thing here. She doesn't. They go in the house. And so that, for me, is the turning. That's the breaking point. I said, well, now I am going to call the police. So I call the police. Um, they take 30 minutes to get there. I'm just standing there thinking, what is going to happen to this little boy? What's going to happen to them inside? I don't know what's going on. Finally, they arrive. I, I kind of try to explain what happened. Uh, I describe her, the woman. Um, they say, okay, we, we think we know who you're talking about. And I'm like, yeah, that's her house right there. And it's like all very, it's all very cut and dry. Just go knock on the door, arrest the dude, arrest her for, I don't know, whatever she did, vehicular manslaughter or whatever she was trying to do. And of course, I keep thinking this whole time, I just think, you know, how twisted, how broken the whole thing is. In a twist of irony, I was actually listening to, I, I listen to books in my ear as I work. And I was listening to a book on parenting. I was talking about the, the aggressive parent versus the assertive parent. And I just thought, man, only white people could write this stuff. <laughs> I just think how, how ridiculously out of touch this is with the human race, you know? It was really, it was really funny to be listening to this sort of, I don't know, PhD trying to talk about assertive parenting while this kid across the street is watching his parents beat the hell out of each other and try to kill them, kill each other. And what is it that I'm really trying to do as I, as I intercede on the block? I don't know, some, some version of fatherhood. Of, of knowing this isn't right, this isn't the way that God wants the world to be. You see, men shouldn't punch women. Women shouldn't try to run men over with their cars. Little boys should not be left alone in the throes of that kind of violence and insanity. And then what happens? What happens is they both get arrested and they leave him alone, orphaned. 
It's all such a mess. And so I step into this street of this fatherless world. And then it just gets even crazier because then the police are like, okay, we need you to come and make an identification of the, the woman who drove the car. They were worried about the car. And I was like, okay, okay. So they're like, we need you to come make an identification. I'm like, I don't really understand what's going on. But they put me in the back of the police cruiser, which is... Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in the back, back of a police cruiser. They're not nice. It's not a nice place. It's like, I don't know, it's like sitting in a, like sitting in a, a bucket or something. So, so I get in the back of this police cruiser. They drive me around the block, just around the corner, and they have this woman. The police have this, this woman, and they bring her out in the street, and I'm supposed to, like, hide, cower behind the police car and, like, identify her. I'm like, guys, I'm good. I could just walk over there, you know. And they're like, no, is that her? Is that her? Now, bear in mind, I've already described her her to them okay completely described her age hair height weight what she was wearing everything I'm the model witness <laughs> I've described her perfectly this woman who's standing in front of me down the street which, which is now cornered by these two police officers and and the car comes up and it's like look at her to, and then I'm, I'm identifying this is totally different she's like 40 years younger than this other woman she has totally different hair colors wearing a totally different outfit I'm like guys what do you think happened here do you think do you think she had some sort of master of disguise and she and she quickly changed her clothes and quickly became 30 years younger I mean what how is this person that you're showing me they're like is it her and they read me something like you don't have to if you don't think it's her you don't have to say her so I'm like guys I got it I'm not gonna say it's somebody that it wasn't somebody and 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 I'm like that's not her it's not her are you sure dude (laughs) let's go over the description again (laughs) yeah okay that's true yeah you did say that (laughs) why are you terrorizing I don't even know who this poor person is It's all such a mess. The man who hits a woman, this, this, this fatherless world. The woman who goes looking for further, instigating more violence. The child left in the crossfire. The police accusing the wrong person. It's just like, breaks my heart. The whole thing is such a mess. Why are we so concerned about our small problems? Oh, we, do, do we, maybe, maybe we just need to make a little more money or, 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 or somebody else has a better vacation or, or somebody else has a better desk or a better chair or, 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 or somebody else looks fitter than I do or somebody else seems to have a happier life on Instagram or all of these trifles that we worry about. And this is the world we live in. This is, this is what's happening every day on the block. Why do we exist? Why do we take breath? Why do we exist for the, for the name, for the glory of Jesus? Why do we care about the kingdom coming? his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Why do we pray for daily bread to be given to all people? Why are we praying for the forgiveness of sins? Because of that stuff that goes on, nothing else even holds a candle. This is why we labor. Because every day, every day, in this city, in our cities, Men are punching women in the face every day. Women are trying to run down uh, their, their significant others. Every day, children are being orphaned. Every day, guys, what is more important than that? 
And I, I, I'm not saying, we, we obviously we can't take all of that on, but if, if we build a home in prayer and that home is a place where we find a gracious Father which wants to say yes to us, then we better be asking the right questions. We better be praying the right prayers. And so I pray, and there I am, praying, even in the car, just praying, praying across the street, praying for this little boy, praying, 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 praying. If only, God, your name were regarded as holy here. If only your kingdom would come here. If only your will would be done here. If only people had their daily bread here. If only these sins could be forgiven. If only we could say uh, no to these constant temptations. To hurt each other, to destroy what is good, to cheat and steal. And so I intercede. I intervene. Because I have to. Because this too is prayer. Don't you dare divorce the two. Don't imagine prayer to be something you simply do in the quiet of your own heart and mind. Prayer is something that you live. It's intercession. And intercession sometimes looks like this and sometimes it looks like this. And the two have to go side by side. The two have to reinforce each other. The two have to, they have to make sense in light of each other. Jesus wasn't just praying in the morning. He was praying all day. The home he built with God was a constant refuge for the, the work of his life. Is that Mary or is that Martha? It's both. It's sitting at the feet of Jesus in the place of action, of intercession. That's true intercession. Your intercessors. Your intercessors. It's just me. What does it look like? It looks like me in a feeble, clumsy, tainted by my own fears and sin, praying into that nonsense, walking into it. And God hearing in the midst of that the cry of my heart, if you want to pray kingdom prayers, if you want to have real intimacy with God, you have to do mission. You have to put yourself in the place where God's kingdom needs to come. And if you want to do mission well, with meaning and some effect, you must pray the prayers that accompany it. Let me close with this. Invite up the worship team. Everything we do Everything we pray and everything we do is meant to be a replica, to bear witness to this kingdom, this hope that we have inside us. This is why we are the way we are. This is why we're not a regular church. This is, this is why this is not the main thing we do. Because, and, and, and that's been hard. I'm gonna be honest with you. There, there are times when people want us to be a regular church. They want us to have uh, a better kids ministry. They want us to spend more money on the stuff like this. And the truth is, we could do that. I could, I could, I could be nicer. You know, we we could we could give Lucas freedom to be kind in his messages and provide daily help for your life with God, and more people would come. I mean, we're we're still the radical fringe, guys. We were ten years ago. We are now. Nothing has really changed. Someone told me when I was pretty young in ministry, 
looked at me and in a condescending way, someone I, I sort of respected, in a condescending way, said, I remember when I was like that. You'll see. You'll learn. Because I was all full of fire and passion and zeal to change the world and a belief in the kingdom. And oh, that's just the hubris of youth or the naivete of somebody who's not really seen the world, not really been in the world. Well, guess what, guys? It's 20-some years later. I'm still here. I'm still just as passionate, more so, more radical. But have people fallen off on the side? You better believe it. But living in the world, I mean, actually seeing the way the world is, actually engaging real need, the need for daily bread, the need for freedom for, from temptation, the need for forgiveness of sin, and the forgiving of sin. When you really throw yourself into those dark, chaotic waters, you realize you need to be more radical, not less. More committed, not less. And finally, when we pray, I think Jesus is saying we ought to pray to remember that we're a son or daughter of God. It's built in to his prayer, this fatherhood of God and our relationship. As John would say, behold, look at what manner of love the Father has lavished on us that he would call us the children of God. And that is what we are children of God. And when we go to God, we go to him as our father who loves us and has a disposition that's gracious toward us. And all of creation waits, Paul said, in eager anticipation for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. I, think of, I still think part of what's holding back real mission in the world from this prayer being released into the world is us because we don't really walk fully in our sonship we don't really walk fully in the truth that we are the children of God Paul would say in another place the person who is led by the spirit of God is a child of God what comes from the place of prayer is the unity with the spirit and what comes from the unity of the spirit is the acting out not just of mission but of our our, our, our being heirs sons and daughters. Maybe it's backwards, but I, I, I just want to, I want to stop there because I want, I, want, I want you to know that when you go into this place of prayer with hope for some greater world, throwing your body on the line for it, building something with your life that replicates that, bear wit, bears witness to something extraordinary, something better. Actually, the purest experience of prayer is just being loved by God. It's just remembering, walking away from the place of prayer. And that's why we want to run back to it because we want to remember, wait, I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I'm loved. And whatever happens to me, whatever blows I take upon my body, I'm yours. I belong to you. And that gift of his presence in the end may be, at least personally for us, the best thing about prayer. It's why the people that know how to persevere in prayer, they don't see it as a discipline. They see it as a joy because it's a chance to just be reminded that we are the objects of God's love. The writer Parker Palmer tells an interesting story about 
when he was in his deepest place of depression. And if you've ever struggled with depression, you're going to probably relate to this. But he talks about the years, I mean the years, where he could not, he could not escape the clutches of severe depression. And he said that friends would come to him. And maybe you've experienced this, or maybe on some smaller level, we've all kind of experienced this. But he said friends would come to him and they would say one of a couple of things. One, they would say, come on, Parker, go outside. It's a beautiful day. Come on. And he said that only made him feel worse. Trying to say, oh, come on, it's a beautiful, can't you see it's a beautiful day? That only makes you feel worse because you realize you can't see it. It just compounds the depression. He said that didn't help him at all. And then there were friends that would come and say, oh, Parker, you're such a great person. You've done so much for so many people. And he said that would make him feel worse. Instead of helping, it would make him feel worse because he'd just think, here's another person I've defrauded who thinks I'm a good person and I'm not. He said he had one friend, one person, an old guy he was, once he was a part of a Quaker denomination, and the Quakers, this was an old Quaker elder who would make appointments to come to his house when he was in the deepest place of depression, would make appointments to come to his house, listen, and, and rub his feet. That's what this guy would do. He said he rarely talked. He would just come and say, can I, can I, can I massage your feet? Okay, I want, you to, I want you to see it. I want you to work it out. I want you to imagine it. He said this guy rarely had anything to say to him at all. If anything, he said occasionally he would say something like, oh, you seem, you seem to be doing better. Or he would just make observations. But he would come in for 30 minutes. He would rub Parker Palmer's feet. And he said that one act, consistently practiced, he said, kept him connected to the human race, kept him from suicide. He said it was this gift this man gave, not to change him to be something he wasn't, but to just be there. And he said the touch, somehow the touch, and even, even, even the touch of his feet, so broke him down, so broke through that act of presence and vulnerability kept him alive. This morning, I want to thank God for this place, but I want to thank him because of his presence, because he washed our feet in this place and so many others. And I, I want you to join me in that. I want you to just feel gratitude. I think that's the right response today. Not sadness, not fear, certainly, but gratitude, gratitude. And not so much for the building, because the bricks will, will all fall down anyway. But for what he did here, for the way that he 
made this place sacred by his presence. And then a craving, a prayer, an intercession that we would all join in today that says, God, go with us. Like Moses said, Lord, I won't go if you don't go with me. I can't go if you don't go with me. If your presence doesn't accompany me, we're going to look like fools. You have to come with us, Lord. We're thankful for this space. But you have to come with us. You are what matters to us. And so as we come to this table, I just want you to do that. Maybe, maybe just take a second and close your eyes. If, if God has done anything good in your life in this building, or if you've seen him do something good in someone else's life in this building, remember it. Remember it. Remember it. Recount it. Rehearse it. Remember it. And say, to, say thanks to God. Lord, right now, I just want you to receive, like, I don't know, a wall of prayer, of, of thanks to you. I want you to hear from our hearts all these little things we felt and saw, all these little ways you showed up for us in this room, in those rooms. Thank you, Lord. And we're asking, Lord, that you would make a promise of your presence to us in the next place, and the next place, and the next place. We, we are your tabernacle. We are your temple, Lord. Wherever we go, you have to come. You have to fill it. You have to make it alive. And this one last time, in this space, Lord, we come to this table. And we remember that on the night you were betrayed, you took bread, and after giving thanks, you broke it. And you said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat it to remember me. And the same way after supper, you took the cup, and you said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of sin. Drink it to remember me. And so again, guys, we come to this table one last time in this space, knowing that the table will always be set for us wherever we are. And I really want you to come this morning, if you'll just let me lead you a little bit. I really want you to come this morning with a heart full of gratitude. And if you need to take a second to push out your own stress or your own, your own obstacles or your own, I don't know, your own things that you're upset about in your life, just push it out and instead replace it with some kind of gratefulness. Is it, how has God blessed you? How has he loved you? How has he been gracious to you? How has he said yes to you already? And as you come to this table and you take this little piece of bread one last time and put it in this, this bowl one last time in this building, that there will be gratitude in your heart and that it would be overflowing as a grace to God, as a blessing to God. This is our thanks back to you, Lord, for your body which was shed for us, your blood, or your body that was broken for us, your blood that was shed for us, for these little spaces that you make for us where you come and inhabit them, for the future which you hold for us, for the kingdom which you want to see come through us and in our prayers. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, give us today, all of us, our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive people that sin against us and lead us away from temptation, Lord. 
Guys, when you're ready, this is the body and blood of Jesus.